When you hear the statement, have faith, does your mind grasp what that really means? Or is it, uh, you know, you've heard it so many times, you just nod and go along with the flow. Uh, you, know, you know you're supposed to understand faith. The pastor talks about it all the time. Uh, but even the scriptures place importance on faith. The writer of Hebrews says, without faith it's impossible to please God. So it must be pretty important then that we know what faith is. In Luke's Gospel, and, and uh, we're as a church reading through the Gospel of Luke, and I'm talking through that this summer, uh, we have one of the miracle stories where faith is on display. And we can learn the central meaning, the central focus, by looking at the example of this military man who needed something desperately that Jesus had to give. Now, Jesus responds to this man's faith and does a remarkable miracle. But before we jump into the text, I want us to just pause for a moment and think in general about the miracles. And if you're reading in Luke, you're going to see miracle after miracle coming up there. So Jesus was often moved to perform miracles because he had this immense capacity for compassion and for concern. Uh, I'm reminded of this aspect of God's character that's shown so clearly in the 103rd Psalm of David. So look at these words and then reflect on them in the context of David's life and in yours. He writes, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As the Father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are but dust. Would you let that sink in just a little bit? Think about that. The Lord is merciful. The Lord is gracious. He, he's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. That means for you and towards you. Now, frequently in the Gospels, we see Jesus responding to people's needs because he was sympathetic to their situation. But even more important is for us to understand what lies behind the miracles. And that has to do with Jesus' purpose in doing miracles. When you read the Gospels, if you're reading with insight, you'll notice that he doesn't heal everyone. Of all the sick who lay by the pool of Bethesda, he healed just one. Sometimes the Gospel account says that Jesus healed everyone who came to him. But other times it says that Jesus left behind those that were coming to him as he slipped away from their presence. He raised Lazarus from the dead, but he didn't raise John the baptizer. So Jesus didn't work miracles just to gain a crowd, to gain a following. In fact, as his ministry grows and his fame grows, this will actually work against him because his movements are impeded with the crowds that are beginning to gather around him. 
In Luke chapter 4, Jesus has been healing people of their diseases, all those that came to him. And then Luke says this, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So why did Jesus perform miracles? What what are the purposes behind it? I'd like to suggest three that at least come to mind. The first is to declare his deity. One of the central themes that we see throughout the Gospels has to do with the identity of Jesus. The Old Testament scriptures prophesied that the Messiah would be identified by works of power, works of miracles. These would attest to his identity. I think that's the reason why the Jews continually ask this question of Jesus, what sign will you show us? We want to really see if you can be this Messiah that you claim to be. Jesus' identity was frequently the topic of conversation among not only the common folk, all of those that were following after him, but also the religious leaders. Now, in one of the great Western movies, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, if you remember the story, these two outlaws are being doggedly pursued by Pinkerton men. And there's this one scene where they're looking back and they're seeing this posse after them, and then they ask, who are these guys? Well, that's the question the religious leaders are asking who is this guy? And Jesus says to his disciples near the end of his earthly time with them, believe me that I am in the Father, the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. If my words don't convince you, then maybe my works will. So it was to declare his deity. The second purpose is to demonstrate his power. Jesus was asked by the religious leaders, by what authority do you do these things? In other words, where do you get this power to do that? This is what they're digging for. Where do you get this power? At one point, they even accuse him of using the power of the devil himself to do these works of miracles. John, in his gospel, chapter 9, records the story of Jesus and his disciples passing by a man who is blind from birth. And the disciples asked Jesus a question that was heatedly debated among the rabbis of the day, and that's this. Who sinned? Did did this man, uh, is he blind because he sinned before he was born? They had this idea that the sin, uh, that the the soul in the womb before it was even conceived or, or born could commit sin. Or was it because his parents sinned and somehow the judgment of their parents' sin were passed on down to him? Jesus replies, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This would be a display of Jesus' power and his authority even over blindness. And as you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus' authority is demonstrated in all the realms over which he will one day rule. There's power over nature power over demons, power over sickness, power over deformity, even power over death. All of these realms that will be summed up in him when he comes and he will forever keep them from his people. 
And then there's a third purpose why he did miracles, and that was to display his glory. One day word came to Jesus that his dear friend Lazarus was sick, sick even to the point of death. And John records Jesus' words to this news. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Listen, Jesus knew Lazarus was going to die. In fact, he even delayed going to Bethany until he knew that he was dead and in the tomb. And then he would go to Lazarus and he would call him out of the dead for the very purpose of displaying his glory. So as you read these stories of miracles in the gospel, and and you can get caught up in, in the amazement of the miracles, but see behind the miracles and see, if you can, the deity and the power and the glory of Jesus Messiah. That's why he does them. So let's take a look at this miracle that Luke records for us in chapter 7. It's a showcase for this thing called faith, and it's going to help us to understand what faith is. So let's go over to Luke 7. If you're grabbing a seat back Bible in front of you, page 1098. Luke chapter 7. So Jesus has just finished teaching what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And then chapter 7, verse 1, tells us that Jesus went to to Capernaum again. And this city on the north side of the Sea of Galilee becomes really the center of much of his earthly ministry. It's also the home to several of his disciples. And so it's here in Capernaum that we have this remarkable encounter. Let me read the story, and then we'll go back and we'll take a deeper look. Chapter 7, verse 1. After he'd finished all his sayings and the hearings of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is as much a character story as it is a miracle story. And in verse 2, we're introduced to this military man. He he might have been a Roman, perhaps even a mercenary, for they served in the Roman army. You notice he's never referred to by name, but only by position. He's called a centurion. The Romans maintained a garrison in Capernaum. And this man had command over a hundred soldiers, thus the name centurion. Now, we learn from history that centurions were carefully chosen, carefully screened for this position. 
Polybius, who lived 200 years before Jesus, spoke about the, the character of these officers. And he wrote that centurions must be, and I'll quote, men who can command, men steady in action and reliable. They ought not to be over-anxious to rush into the fight, but when hard-pressed, they must be ready to stand their ground and die at their posts. So it was certainly commendable for his responsibilities and for his actions here and for his military duty. We learn a whole lot more about the character of this man from the text. And we're going to look at several attitudes. First of all, his attitude toward his slaves. Now remember, in Roman culture, slaves were viewed as nothing more than property, to be used however one chose, to be discarded when no longer useful. So here's a slave who is sick. He's unable to work. He's non-productive. And yet we read this remarkable thing that the centurion highly valued him. I don't think we are to draw the conclusion that he was valued only because of his economic potential. In fact, the Greek word that's translated highly valued means literally precious or dear. For example, it's the same word used in the letter of 2 Peter or 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. Look at this. And you've come to him that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God chosen and here's our word precious. It's used to describe how the father sees the son. It speaks volumes about the centurion. No wonder that the New Testament places a premium on looking out for others rather than just ourselves. It's such a commendable character trait. And then there's this attitude toward religion. This is unusual. This, this officer is not antagonistic toward religion. In fact, he's not even neutral. We learn that he had provided the funds to build the synagogue in that city. Now this tells us that he probably had some measure of wealth. And in this act, he not only tolerated religion, he promoted religion. Now he might well be what was called a God-fearer, a Gentile who respected and revered God. And we have several uh, examples of this in the scriptures that are mentioned, particularly in the New Testament. Here's one example. The first Gentile who was converted to Christ, mentioned in the book of Acts, who was it? Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. Uh, look, what, look what Luke says of him in Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Such a man is this centurion in Capernaum. And coupled with his attitude toward religion, we also see his attitude toward Jews. The Romans are an occupying force in Judea and Galilee. You know, at best they tolerated those whom they were subjecting. And they kept the peace as the highest importance. Now, anti-Semitism is nothing new. It was clearly the attitude in Jesus' day as well all around the world. And yet here is a man who is on the best of terms with the Jewish civil authorities. 
And so he asked that a delegation of the city leaders go to Jesus with the request that he will come and heal his servant. Notice again the position of favor in which he stands with the Jews. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built our synagogue. They sing his praises, and they appeal to Jesus on the basis of what a fine person this centurion is, what a fine man he is, and how much that he has helped these people. He's esteemed greatly by the Jews. It says a lot about his character. And Jesus responds. We're not told the reason why. Perhaps there are many reasons. But he turns and he heads for the centurion's home. And then we see another amazing attitude that the centurion holds, and that is of himself. The words of the Jewish delegation who went to Jesus, I don't think are his. In fact, it's the opposite. And maybe during the intervening time, that the delegation heads to Jesus and then Jesus begins to make his way to the centurion's home, the officer has reflected on the situation. And his conclusion, I'm not even worthy to have this man come under my roof. Now, I really don't think that this is just some false modesty or some manipulative ploy. I think it represents genuine humility. And as he thinks about this man who claims to be Messiah, he draws this accurate description and assessment. It's interesting that the word for humility in the Greek New Testament is drawn from a military uh, meaning. It's a term which means to properly rank oneself. That's what the centurion is doing here. As he thinks about this one to whom he's appealing, he chooses to properly rank himself. Again, this is extraordinary because this is an occupying army. They could have their way. They had the power and force to do whatever they wanted to do. Yet he makes a decision to properly rank himself under the position and the authority of Jesus. In reality, he puts himself in the place of a common soldier, maybe even a slave. Look again at the text starting at verse 6. And Jesus went with them when he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. It's such an amazing confession here, an admission. In fact, it's such that it says that Jesus marveled at his statement. You know that there's only one other place in your entire New Testament where it ever says that Jesus marveled at someone or something. It's in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, and it's in Mark's account of Jesus going to Nazareth. And that little section, that paragraph ends with saying, and Jesus, because of the people's unbelief, could do no miracles there. And then it says this, Jesus marveled at their unbelief. He is so amazed at this Roman soldier, the centurion, and in response to his faith, in response to his humility, to his trusting in Jesus' ability to heal, Jesus says this, 
When Jesus heard these things, verse 9, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The sad thing in the gospel accounts is, is, is that the only people, it seems, that Jesus ever complimented on their faith were Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that amazing? Here are the Jews who had the law, the writings, the prophets, recipients of the covenant of God and the commands of God. They should have been the most of all people in the world prepared to recognize and accept the Messiah. But they had such little faith. Jesus even chastises his own disciples on more than one occasion for their lack of faith. And what a contrast to this Roman centurion. The outcome is that the servant is healed. Matthew's account adds this, and to the centurion Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed, and the servant was healed at that very moment. Now the final attitude that we see is this, his attitude toward Jesus. News about Jesus obviously was widespread by this time, not only because of his teachings, but because of his miracles. It, it, it seems unlikely that the centurion has met Jesus, but he certainly heard of him. He knows of him. And this knowledge led to his faith in Jesus' ability to heal. Surely that's what motivated him to send a delegation of Jews to ask of Jesus. And as he reflected upon what he was asking Jesus to do, he certainly came to the conclusion that Jesus was able to do what he had heard about him. And he shows great deference to Jesus by comparing how one uh, displays authority within the military structure and the ability of Jesus to command at his will and it will be done. And so we see the centurion held Jesus in very high regard. Now, it, it doesn't require us to conclude that he was or became a true believer in Jesus, although it wouldn't preclude that assessment either. But he puts his trust in Jesus' ability and willingness to heal. He put words to his attitude and was not only complimented by Jesus, but Jesus rewarded in the sense that the servant was healed instantaneously. This is one of those examples from the Gospels where Jesus responds because of the faith of the one asking. There's this clear linkage of faith and healing. So let's step outside of the text, shall we? Let's, let's see what faith is and, and what it means to exercise faith. Simply put, faith is believing God. It is, it is taking God at his word is trusting that God will do what he said he would do. The writer of Hebrews describes faith in this way, chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now remember that biblical hope is not the way we use it, I hope so. It's guaranteed certainty. And the hope in which we have confident assurance is the sum of God's promises. Biblical hope, based upon God's promises, form the substance of our faith and the response of our faith. 
God has made promises. Faith is the belief that God will keep his promises. He will honor his word. So when God says that if we will turn from our sin and any other way of saving ourselves, God will save us and he will give us eternal life. Faith believes that God will do what he said he would do. When God says that all your sins are forgiven, that you'll never come into judgment for your sins, faith says, I believe that God will do what he said he will do. When God says to bring every need and request to him with thanksgiving, then his peace will guard your hearts and your minds. Faith believes that God will do what he said he would do. When God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, faith says, I believe that God will do what he said he will do. When God says, count it all joy in the midst of difficulties and trials in your lives because he will use them for your good ultimately and for his glory, faith says, I believe that God will do what he said he will do. You can just go right on down the line with the promises in the scripture that apply to you. Now remember there's some that don't apply to you, okay? A lot of promises given to Israel that don't apply to us in this age, but there's a lot of promises that God gives for you today. Faith says, I believe that God will do what he said he would do. Just a word of caution, friends. Remember, faith is not a trump card that we play. So somebody else gets cancer. Somebody else loses their job. Somebody else has a family crisis with children. Not you. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card that exempts you from difficult circumstances. But it is rather the confidence that you can face any challenge, any difficulty. Why? Because God is in the mix. God is there. He will always be by your side, and he will bring you safely into his presence when your life here is done. Daryl Bach writes about faith. Look at this. Faith plays a central role in our spiritual lives. We are saved by faith, and we walk by faith. There's no more basic attitude of the spiritual life than to walk with God in trust which means recognizing what God is capable of doing while accepting what he delivers. He goes on to say, faith may mean having the strength to endure rejection. It may mean trusting God for spiritual insight. It may mean asking him for deliverance. It may mean accepting what he's brought into our lives and relying on his grace. Above all, it means never letting go of the commitment to go where God is taking us. What it does not mean is treating God like a king of a give-me-what-I-want machine who simply answers requests we make because we have them. Our spiritual development requires that he be in charge of where we are going. Faith believes that God will do what he said he would do. So let me ask you, what promise of God do you need to claim today? Do you need to believe today? Maybe it's about salvation. Maybe it's about his presence in your life. Maybe it's that he will walk with you even if you're going through deep water today. What are you going to need to trust him for this week? When you look out of your week and you've got maybe decisions coming, when you've got things that you need to do, when you've got some tough things to face, what do you need to do in terms of believing that God will do what he said 
he would do. Faith believes that God will do what he said he would do. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you above all that you are worthy of our faith, that your promises are sure. And Lord, I know that there are those in our family here that are going through difficult times that may be having a difficult time seeing that. But Lord, would you give them the ability to trust you nonetheless? And even a greater element of faith, Lord, is when we don't see the outcome, but we believe that you're there with us, that you're in the mix with us, that you know the beginning from the end of our lives. You, you've already lived tomorrow. You know what it holds. Lord, would we choose to trust in you, to believe that you will deliver on your promises. And may we have the confident assurance, Lord, that you will bring about your perfect, perfect result because we put our trust in you. And so we commit ourselves to you today as we begin a new week. Lord, would you be pleased to reveal your strength and your power in us as we trust you this week. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.